Welcome to the Fed Heads, a weekly podcast from Grant Thornton Public Sector. Join the Fed Heads, Robert Shea and Francis Rose, each week to talk about the arcana of government management and the people who are working hard every day to improve it. Welcome to episode 171 of Fed Heads. I'm Francis Rose. And I'm Robert Shea. There is an organization, a group of people in our city, Robert, who are engaged in activities that meet with disdain, shall we say, outside the Beltway. Sources of derision is the coolest phrase I could come up with. Is that fair to say, do you think? I think you've really set the stage for an inviting experience for our guests. Uh, We're about to talk to a real swamp creature. The cohort of people that I'm talking about is lobbyists. I have been in Washington long enough to know that lobbyist is not a bad word, uh, that there are lobbyists that perform useful functions for the American people. Charles Cooper's managing director of Signal DC uh, and our guest on this episode of FedHeads. Charles, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Let's start with what a lobbyist is versus the image that most people have of what lobbyists are and what they do. Welcome. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. I'm a big fan of the of the podcast and, and appreciate the opportunity to join you both. So I've been, uh, you know, both a consumer of lobbying as a as a longtime congressional staffer and and a lobbyist. So I've seen it sort of from from both sides. But at the end of the day, you know, lobbying is really just advocating for issues that may impact or align with the government. And I think people would be surprised to know that most entities either have lobbyists or affiliated with lobbyists because everybody has a lot at stake, both opportunities and risk and uh, in what the government does, the federal government or state and local government. And so a lot of people want to get out there and, and advocate for their cause. And I think uh, it goes without saying that over time, just like a lot of professions, there has on occasion been been some nefarious actors that appropriately were were not welcome back uh, in town here. But I think generally speaking, these are are organizations and firms that work for a lot of a lot of great companies, nonprofits, startups, and and others uh, that really are trying to make sure that government officials are educated on on what the needs are out there. So tell us your your journey, Charles. You talked about your time in government. What led you to this decision to become a lobbyist and be a successful lobbyist? I came to Capitol Hill after college. I'd interned one year on the Senate side and got a job with my senator when I graduated. And I thought I'd be here one year and maybe go back to school or do something else. And I really fell in love with it. Like I think the, the institution of Congress is something that I, I really admire and uh, have enjoyed being a student of. And I, I really appreciated the the impact that Congress can have, frankly, on big solutions and challenges that our country's facing. And so for 10 years, 11 years, I spent two, two in the Senate, nine in the House, and doing a number of things, working for some personal offices, working Republican leadership and, and otherwise. Right around the 11-year mark, you know, you, that's pretty long, long tenure for, for somebody saying in, uh, in the House or Senate. So I... I sort of thought about what my options are. My boss at the time was retiring and running for, for a different office uh, statewide in Florida. And I thought it would be a good time for me to, to look at what else was out there. And I really had no intention of going to a lobbying firm, but, but looked at those as one option. And the place I landed is a place where I thought was being 
really innovative and thoughtful about how they, they work with clients and do so in a bipartisan way with a lot of different expertise around the table. And I, I uh, joined the firm and, and have been there ever since for just over 10 years. How do you determine what causes you'll take up and what causes you won't take up? A lot of people think, I imagine, that it's as simple as who's going to pay you. And I'm sure that's a factor because people got to make a living. But I imagine that's not the only factor, Charles. Yeah, that's a great question that we actually get a lot. And the reality is there's a lot that we won't take up. You know, I mean, as a firm, we have just like any any company does, we have a, a strong set of values as to what what our firm means and what the people who work there uh, stand up for. And so there's there's a number of issues that we would we would stay away from, obviously, that that uh, is probably a, a too long of a list for the next 10 minutes. <laughs> but but we we want to make sure that we're staying within our values, things that we believe in and things that we're proud of uh, and that represent what uh, what our teammates uh, are really focused on. And second is really what our expertise is. You know, we want to make sure that if we're working with a client that uh, that they're able to leverage our expertise and that we are the right fit for them. And, and in that case, it can sometimes be subject matter expertise. It can sometimes be uh, just sort of consulting expertise where, we're, where we think they should go or our strategic guidance on how to get there. And then lastly, I would say, you know, whether there's a need. We, we, get, we do get people that entities that come to us and say, hey, we really need a lobbyist. And after talking to them, candidly, they don't, they don't really need a lobbyist. Maybe they need a, a PR professional or a communications professional or a lawyer. And uh, we, we have in our firm a communication shop as well. And we have affiliation with our parent company as a law firm. But regardless, you know, we, we're going to take on on clients that we think we can really help get to the solutions that they need. And if not, we're going to be very honest with them because it doesn't benefit us. Either. The audience who hopefully the dozens of people who are listening today are focused on the business of government, making government work and work better. How do your clients who are in that sort of business, what are they trying to get Congress or agencies to do? How are they trying to, uh, to influence things for the betterment of government? It's a great question. And, you know, I, I know you, uh, Robert, obviously, uh, when I worked on the Hill for a period of time, you were working the administration along, along the lines of making government better. And I think from, from my perspective now, you know, it's a very small group of people on Capitol Hill, especially, that are focused on those issues. Uh, you you would think that everybody sort of has a hand in that, but but everybody on the Hill has has priority issues, and not not everybody focuses on the institution of government, uh, the public sector. So first of all, it's it's trying to find out wh- where are the the well positioned, most influential people within within Congress that are really focused on these issues, and then secondly for the work we're doing you know it's a combination of things but but most things in dc center around funding so it's really uh whether it be it modernization or uh, cloud modernization or or cyber funding or workforce or ai or supply chain whatever it is it's thinking through uh, where can the government impact that and in some cases it's how decisions are being made and in some cases it's how those programs are being funded so I would say those are the two core categories that we're working on. What moves the needle in lobbying? What makes one successful at it? 
is it as simple as just having connections to get a message through or what what's involved again i think perception is that you worked on the hill so you go back to the people that you know and you get done whatever it is that you want to get done and again i'm sure the reality is not as simple as that i think things have evolved you know i mean candidly like every other industry you know what what lobbying may have been 20 or 30 years ago frankly what lobbying was 10 years ago is very different than what it is today you know, at one time, sort of access was everything. Being able to, to knock on doors and know the people behind the doors and get in there. I, I don't think that that's a big value proposition anymore, candidly. Most organizations can, can communicate pretty directly with the people that represent them. And I think, uh, from my perspective, I, I feel like my colleagues and I have great networks. But if someone's just hiring us for, for networks, they can, they can probably um, deal with just about anybody to sort of walk them around the hill. I think what the focus is in terms of trying to move the needle is, is a few things. One is it's really strategy focused. Like if you can build a really good strategy that incorporates not only the Congress or the administration, but the entire policy ecosystem, which includes think tanks and stakeholders and partners, uh, maybe, maybe constituent groups, maybe some grassroots communications. If you can leverage that entire policy ecosystem, uh, you're going to be a lot more successful. And, and secondly, it's to, to engage. You know, there's a lot of people that come to Washington uh, prior to COVID, maybe do it virtually now, but uh, come to Washington in some regard once a year and talk about their issue and are pretty passionate about it, uh, get a good meal in D.C. and get out of town, come back next year and can't figure out why it's not resolved. The reality is engaging is important, just like any other business. If you're, if you're selling something, you know, you, you stop in town once a year, people aren't going to buy it six months from then. So... It's, it's really making sure that you have a pretty consistent presence here, uh, that, you, that you're on the ground to the degree that you can be, and that you use, it, uh, you use the strategy and your platform as a means of educating. And doing so with a feeling that it's not just lobbying, it also needs to be communications and other things. And let me just close with this. As we've seen the focus of members of Congress and policymakers change from being sort of more policy-heavy to more communications heavy. They're much more savvy over social media. They're much more savvy in thinking about how they're going to communicate messages. And let's face it, their constituents know more about what they're doing when they're on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC than when they introduce a bill and it's on congress.gov. Just a reality. So lobbying has to adjust to that too. And lobbying has to think, you know, if these folks are communicators and they're looking at things from a communications lens, you can't just think about lobbying. You really have to think about lobbying, communications, messaging, and and the entire sort of the, the entire bucket in that regard as it relates to engagement and, and building a really good strategy. Lobbyists do have a bad name and th- there have been bad eggs for what is not allowed in lobbying. What are the things that you are prohibited from doing by law that, w- that would otherwise get you in trouble? Well, I think, I think first of all, it's a it's important to know what's required. So every everybody who lobbies, and there's a threshold for that, uh, that's that's essentially 20% of your time and a couple a couple meetings. But everybody who lobbies has to has to register. And so they have to sit, file paperwork that essentially says, uh, here's who we're lobbying for, here's what we're lobbying for. And so that that's all public record and it's all known. So first of all, you have to register. So if you weren't weren't registering and you hit the threshold that would that would not be allowed 
second of all, there's some limitations in in um, in how you can engage, just like anybody else. You know, you, if you're lobbying, that's an official action. That's that's operating under the the member of Congress or the policymakers' official capacity, and that that cannot be aligned with any sort of uh, any sort of uh, campaign activity. And that's an important one. You know, those are two very separate separate worlds, and you want to keep it that way. And and maybe a third is uh, just thinking through some of the some of the issues that have been out there. Is it's important to to know sort of where the lines are on on issues. You want to make sure that if you're working with a client, uh, you're you're only representing that side of the issue and not both sides of the issue. That's a practice that all businesses sort of engage on the conflict of interest side. So, I think those are the three big ones that when when you hear about things in the press, you've seen it. But but I don't feel like I need to defend the whole industry here. But I, I will say, I, I, I sounds will like say, we're making you do that though. So <laughs> sorry about I, I that. I will say that uh, that it's a very small percentage of bad actors that have been out there. And the, the laws that have passed have been very good to make sure that there's more transparency over it, to make sure that, that folks are operating um, above board and that everybody knows what everybody's doing, which, which is really important. And you should be proud of what you're doing and you should be engaged. There's a whole, whole different set of rules if you're working on issues that are, that are based outside of the United States. But the, these are important reforms. They're, they're good. And I, I think it's really helped, helped uh, resolve some of the issues. And frankly, for, for folks like us who, you know, we are, we're very focused on where those rules are. We work very closely with our, our law firm to, to ensure our filings are accurate and everything's out there. The, the reality is, like, we, we don't want bad actors in our, in our industry uh, any more than any other industry wants bad actors in their industry. So we are, we're appreciative of the changes that have been made and we're probably, uh, be willing to, to welcome others that that are appropriate we're starting to run out of time and as we finish i'm curious what specifically you expect to see out of some of the high profile issues that you talked about earlier in our conversation in the next month to um infrastructure obviously is huge on people's agendas you talked about it modernization is something that people that listen to this program are interested in and other things like that. What do you see, how do you see some of those issues playing themselves out in the coming weeks and months, Charles? Well, I think if you look, we sort of look at it from now to the end of the year because Congress is back really short uh, stint next week. Then they're, they're, they're out to late September. Then everything's sort of a rush before Christmas and then, then uh, get out of town. So I look at it till the end of the year, and here's all the things that, that are out there, a bunch of which impact folks that really care about the public sector. And I'm working in no, no particular order here, but the, inf- the bipartisan infrastructure package, this $1 trillion bill that came out of the Senate, it's sitting in the House, so the House has to take that up. They'll do it sometime in the fall, we assume. I think it's probably likely they won't amend it, so it, it will likely be where it is now, but that happens sometime in the fall. Then uh, there's a budget resolution. That's already passed the Senate. That is likely to pass the House on Monday or Tuesday of next week. And that sets up a discussion for the third piece, which is this budget reconciliation, this $3.5 trillion uh, infrastructure funding bill that will probably also include some, some revenue uh, provisions that, that, address, that, that impact the tax code. 
Uh, in addition to that, you have all 12 appropriations bills. So everything that funds the government has to be done by September 30th. Uh, the Defense Authorization Act, every all the policies under the Department of Defense, all of which have big implications to people that care about the public sector, for sure, because of how much uh, how much they are doing in the technology space and otherwise. That has to be done by December 31st. There's a handful of smaller bills that need to be done at different times between them. And then the last piece is the, the raising of the debt ceiling, which is going to, uh, the debt limit is going to need to be addressed sometime in um, in the fall, early fall. And so Congress is going to have to come back and, and deal with that in some regard. That's a lot on a plate for a Congress where casual observers think do nothing. You know, there's a lot on the plate to, to get done. I think a good amount is actually going to get done. Uh, there needs to be a, a good amount of bipartisanship to get some of these over the finish line, not all of it, but it's going to be an active year. And for anybody interested in, in public sector issues, this is, this is a moment where a lot of funding is going to happen, a lot of policy is going to happen, and it all may come down to, to the end of the year. So we're watching it closely. A lot for us to keep track of and uh, a lot for us to watch. And thank you very much for turning us on to all of it and turning our eyes in the right direction, Charles. It's great to have you on the program. Hey, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. You guys are the best. And uh, thank you. Thanks for listening to The Fed Heads, brought to you by Grant Thornton Public Sector. All of the resources talked about during the episode are available in the episode description. We'd love to hear from you. Connect with us on Twitter at GT Public Sector to join the conversation. And don't forget to leave us a comment or review on iTunes or the Google Play Store. 